Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, and, and your reference to the performers who are going to Israel, while well, we read generally only about those who announce a boycott, right. you know that Justin Timberlake was there this week right. and had 44,000 people came to the Ayakon, the park end, for the concert. But more interestingly, uh, yesterday the Rolling Stones announced that they're changing the time of their performance next week <laughs> in order for religious Jews and their religious fans to be able to come. So they moved it from 8.30 to back uh, till 9.15. For Wednesday night. For Wednesday night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no comment is necessary. On Unbelievable. That. One day of Shavuos in Israel, folks. So Wednesday night, the Rolling Stones are playing. And I knew of people that, that had made arrangements to actually stay in the Tel Aviv area for Shavuos Day so that they'd be able to go straight to the concert. Talk talk about the talk about the differences of how one spends one night to the next. Huh? <laughs> brings you I mean, up all night, Tuesday night, and then with the Rolling Stones Wednesday night. But your point, of course, is that they're accommodating the feds, and they continue. And by the way, apparently it was Bob Dylan who convinced the Stones to go, not convinced, who recommended to the Stones yes, to, go. to go to Israel. But in general, just the, the, the entire topic is... Uh, is one of um, is one that we could talk about all morning long. It's amazing how these artists go to Israel. Obviously, they have worldwide influence. You just mentioned how many people came to this week's concert. They have so much, uh, so many fans who take everything they say so seriously. When they do, in fact, go ahead and make a symbolic gesture or say something positive about Israel, we know it's having a very big effect. You know how we know? Because the enemy is out there destroying them afterwards. I'm sure you saw that, right? That just the fact that he hashtagged the word Israel in his tweet from the Kotel was a big deal among the uh, Arab nations. But if you saw that the, in, in one hour, when he posted the picture, I actually had some involvement, and he, he went right from the airport in the middle of the night to the Kotel, this uh-huh. is Justin Timberlake, and he had 300,000 likes in an hour or two. He, has, he and his wife, who's an actress, have 50 million people following them on, on Facebook and their other uh, Internet. And he put that picture out himself, uh, standing at the hotel. He got negative response, which is why people should respond positively. Right. Whether you listen to his music or not, you should show him support and express appreciation. But 300,000 likes, it tells you the, the power and why... We have America's Voices, which is bringing over all of these people because their influence in reaching audiences who may not read a newspaper or may not follow, you know, detail what's happening. But when they see him telling how amazing Israel is or people equivalent to him, I, I, it has a really broad impact. And on the topic of uh, telling people what Israel is, uh, I would love to see some people from our community uh, talk about Israel with the same enthusiasm as a Justin Timberlake. And guess what, Malcolm? We have an opportunity this coming Sunday uh, to actually show our support and speak loudly on behalf of Israel and celebrate Israel, which is something that you always encourage because we do spend a lot of time sometimes on the downtime uh, or the down uh, aspects of um, of our tradition or the more, the more uh, sad aspects of our tradition. We take those seriously, which we should. Uh, but often we don't celebrate enough of Israel and Jewish pride. So this Sunday on Fifth Avenue, we have an opportunity to do that. We saw this week on Jerusalem Day how few celebrations there were to commemorate this such an important anniversary, the 47th anniversary of Jerusalem being reunited. 
we talk about it, we, we, we pray about Jerusalem so many times each day, it's in all our tefillahs, we talk about the return, and we talk about the rebuilding, and here we have it, and not even events to commemorate, to talk about the history, to, to recreate the, the context. The Arabs are all the time knocking it, denying our connection, trying to undermine the, the, the history and taking away our past, to take away our future, and so few people and so few synagogues and, and, and places where they said, how will not, but to commemorate it, to talk about it, to talk about Yerushalayim and Jerusalem's significance. It's mentioned almost 700 times in Tanakh, and we can't take one day where we teach the young about it to, to celebrate the great gift we have of this vibrant city and, and to, to talk about it, as you said, like some of these visitors who, who write back, and yeah. I, I send the copies of it, because Jews have to read it. They have to be re-inspired, and maybe it takes outsiders to remind us and to come to the parade and to, to other opportunities to show that we care. And we appreciate what a Kaddish Baruch what God has given us, this generation. Yeah, we have to really, we have to make sure we spur our Jewish leaders of all types to speak positively and to get these messages out to our communities. It's so important. And by the way, I'm sure you saw the debate. Jerusalem Day should be a national holiday in Israel. And I claim, as we said Wednesday here, it should be an international holiday for all Jews. It doesn't mean a religious one necessarily, but every Jewish community around the world should in some way acknowledge and focus on uh, on the fact that Yom Yerushalayim exists. Maybe as we get closer to the 50th anniversary of its reunification, maybe it'll spur people on to uh, to include it a little bit more in their public presentations. Who knows? One can only hope. Um, let's go back uh, to the beginning of the week, and then we'll come back to uh, some of the things that happened in Israel and other places and continue to happen um, uh, more recently. Uh, take us back to the Brussels attack of this past weekend, and uh, I'm sure you're more able to uh, clearly um, uh, describe for us uh, whether this was a, a terror attack, uh, an anti-Semitic attack, all the different classifications that different uh, authorities wanted to give what happened in Brussels, this tragedy this past weekend. What update can you give us regarding that uh, attack? Well, uh, as you know, the, an Israeli couple who were involved in national service and representing Israel abroad, um, but were there in the museum visiting innocently a, a an employee, a French employee of the museum, and the fourth person connected to it were all victims of the attack. The they have not apprehended the person responsible, so we're not going to know fully what the motivation, but from all the evidence points that this was uh, carried out coolly, uh, efficiently, walked in, shot, and left. Now, some people say maybe he was targeting those people. We have no indication that that is the case, and it comes within the broader context of events there, the up the election that was held uh, shortly thereafter, the the uh, parliamentary elections, which have aroused a lot of passions in, uh, in in Europe, around Europe, and we'll talk about those results, because I believe that, that they all interrelate, that there is a climate that's being created. Again, we can't attribute the particular event, but, you know, the same day, two Jews leaving a shul, a synagogue in Paris, right. get attacked, beaten up, uh, one of the latest in a long series of such uh, incidents, each one of which can be, you know, uh, minimized or, or uh, not considered as a cataclysmic event. But you have to look at the totality of what's happening. And the, the tsunami of the election results 
where where in France in particular you have the Le Pen party getting uh, pulling the largest numbers of votes and getting 25% will have real impact on the domestic politics of France aside from what will happen in the European Parliament uh, and that is I'll take a second just to review that because we're talking now about the whole climate that is being created and I think you will see new attacks on the issue of Brit Milav circumcision on Chita, ritual slaughter. But even a violent attack like that of last weekend, you would say, is part of the whole uh, uh, atmosphere? Yes, I do say it. Wow. And, and I'm saying to you that there are, look, we have Khalimi, we had the attacks in Toulouse, you had the attacks there, you had the attack in, in Germany, you've had attacks in, in Great Britain. We, I mean, we've, had, we've seen these physical manifestations, not talking just about hate speech, right. but you have constant incitement, you have the, you know, the Quinell, the... the pseudo-Nazi salute uh, that uh, Dujian, the comedian, so-called comedian, introduced, uh, and, and then it being displayed at, at the sports games and in different uh, public venues. All of these things right. are part of the whole. And right, but in this case, we just don't know, right? The suspect's still at large, right? So we just, right, and we don't right. know what, what the particular right. motivation was, but clearly right. it's, it's something... It, it appears at least to be right. The venue, etc. Right. Uh, an attack. There was nothing directed at those two individuals. Said to them right. that would indicate that it was directed to them. But you know, we had Golden Dawn in Greece winning three seats, and it is a uh, an extremist party called neo-Nazi. Um, the, the, and they have uh, a symbol which is sort of reconstructed swastika. You have the NPD in Germany, which is clearly neo-Nazi. They got one seat. In Hungary, the Jobbik Party, or Jobbik, as they say, got three seats, and they are uh, very extreme, sort of uh, along the same lines as uh, as Golden Dawn. They they talked about having one of their members uh, who called for registering Jews as a national security threat. You've told us about European equivalents to the uh, to the Conference of Presidents. How are they dealing with all this? How are those that are turned to for leadership at, at, at this time dealing with uh, with what's going on, and how are they approaching the individual European governments to discuss these things? Well, there have been, and the French government, in fact, all of the governments have responded. This is not a case where the governments are indifferent. The problem is that, that they have to be much tougher on a lot of issues. Now, I want to be clear that some of the parties that won, and I didn't, I'm not going to go through all of them now, but some of the parties that won are really anti-immigration. Some of them are your skeptics. Right. Some of them are not anti-Semitic. It's not their agenda. Uh, Gert uh, Wilder's party in Netherlands isn't it? He, he thinks of himself as pro-Israel. Right. Um, but but what it what it reflects is the unrest. A lot of it is motivated by the poor economic conditions, the anti-Muslim feeling, which spills over to the Jewish community, and certainly anti-Semitic movements. We should not minimize it. You have to confront it. You have to address it. You have to deal with it. Some are de- dealing with it by leaving, but the, for the bulk of the community that's remaining, the, the leadership in the Jewish community, whether in Brussels or in Paris and London, have been outspoken. I think that for a long time they refused, and when I would raise these issues, they were very sensitive and sometimes even resentful about uh, my assessments of, of where things were headed and, and that of others. And I think it's it, you know that was regrettable, but they are there. They're speaking out. The, they have expressions of support from much of the political spectrum when these uh, things occur. But it, it, it is a warning sign to us what's happening. So and the election, you could see a change, for instance, in in Israel-related issues 
when 25% of the people sitting now in the parliament are affiliated with extremist parties of one kind or another. Um, if you were asked to address, and I don't want to be too dramatic here, because I don't think you're being an alarmist on this issue, this issue. I think it's more of a reality. But uh, if you were to address European jury, obviously you wouldn't call for everyone to, you know, to run and hide at the moment, but... But what would the message be? Would you call for more involvement, for people to be more engaged with government officials and to play more of an active role and to take seriously what's happening politically around them? Uh, the answer is never to run and hide. To to leave, not because they have to run, but because they can leave when they can. They're, and, uh, what, 3,500 French Jews left uh, last year. Right. Uh, many others across Europe, you have Jews leaving, but you also have non-Jews leaving, which only exacerbates the demographic imbalances that have been created. And my my reaction is that you've got to stand up, you've got to demand that they, they legislate, they uh, uh, use existing legislation, that they act against it. And remember, in Europe, you have much tougher laws right. uh, on, on libel and on uh, Holocaust denial, for instance. In America, you can't arrest somebody for denying the Holocaust. In Europe, you can. And they have, and they've acted against uh, people and also public officials but I think the leaders in Europe, not the Jewish community, the non-Jewish leaders have to look at this as they are for their own domestic political purposes and aspirations to see what does this all mean. And I think you will see more resistance, countries like England and others, uh, towards on the question of uh, getting more involved and expanding the European Union. And uh, I think this, the Eurosceptic movement will, will continue to grow. Therefore, it has to be that a society isn't judged whether it has haters. It's judged by how they deal with the haters. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Europe is now in, in the corner on this issue. They're in the docket. They've got to stand up and demonstrate that it's not enough to build memorials to Jews. I don't want any more memorials to dead Jews. I want them to stand up for living Jews. I want them to do what's right. I want to see all the resources applied. Uh, towards pursuing whoever was responsible for this incident, but not just him. Who else was involved? Finding out they don't act alone. And in, in, in France, they kept saying these were individuals when they killed Halimi, when others, uh, when Toulouse took place. And then we find out, in fact, that they were inspired at a mosque, that they had other ties. And now you have hundreds and hundreds of them. And it's why I kept stressing this issue on this show and everywhere else for the last two years. Hundreds now fighting in, in Syria, who will come back as trained killers, trained killers. They are not, you know, they may have gone for some ideological reason. They come back as jihadists, and they have a special place in Raqqa and Syria, I mentioned, where they're training people for foreign uh, attacks. So this is only the, the precursor. This is the warning. And they better take it seriously, including Americans. They say that there are maybe 200, some say 80, Americans, I believe it's in the hundreds, and and we had a first American killed in a in a suicide bombing in Syria, uh, but and you know today in Israel there was the first attempted suicide bomber in in years um, who tried to sneak into Israel but was detected wearing a heavy coat in the hot weather, and thank God they found him and prevented it. That was the uh, uh, potential bombing at Tapuach Junction, which uh, made the headlines. America's one and only Jewish. Moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Malcolm Holmline is with us as we discuss uh, the events of this week here on a 
Friday morning broadcast. So the Pope went to Israel. We discussed uh, in advance of his trip some of the things, some of the issues last week. Um, a lot of symbolism in the trip, uh, a lot of different uh, gestures. Uh, what did you make of this uh, offer, this invitation for leadership from both Israel and the PA to come to the Vatican to join in a day of prayer with the Pope? Well, I believe in prayer. Uh, uh, I think that the Pope's visit uh, had uh, mixed results. In fact, some of the good things he did got almost no attention, like visiting the memorial to the victims of terror together with the Prime Minister or visiting Herzl's grave and recognizing the Jewish state, the history of Zionism, etc., but those and Yad Vashem, those things didn't get attention because the picture, the iconic picture of this trip, was the Pope with his head against the separation barrier, at a part where there is actually a wall, which is which is you know about five percent of the actual fence, and there was graffiti there that was extremely offensive, and uh, that became the picture, and uh, you know the fact that he, la- he landed in the state of Palestine, as they said. Yeah. Um, I think was became the dominant story out of this uh, out of the trip. How about the prayer meeting? It's, it seemed to me like a setup, um, publicly uh, issuing an invitation to Shimon Peres to participate in that. What is the Pope trying to say that uh, the, the, the middle the Middle East peace conflict will be, uh, or the Middle East conflict, I should say, will be resolved if we all meet in the Vatican and uh, you know have a nice moment together? Uh, maybe he's talking about the power of prayer. Maybe he's trying to put themselves in the middle, the Vatican playing a key role. Uh, I, I did not hear the kind of condemnations that I expected of the violence against Christians in the in the Palestinian Authority, where, where the Christian population has been depleted so rapidly, especially in, the, in Bethlehem, or the persecution of Christians around the, the Middle East in, in Arab and Muslim societies. Um, uh, I, I, we didn't hear that, and I think uh, uh, that would be the subject for where the Vatican ought to be playing a key role in summoning the leadership and putting a stop or, or demanding a stop to it. But I have no problem with the, you know, if, if, if many people feel that it should have been Netanyahu who was invited because he's really the counterpart. That's right. Shimon Peres is head of state, he's not head of government. And as you know, he's going out of power, and the presidential election is in full swing in Israel. Yeah, I want to talk about that. But first, maybe the best counterpart would have been uh, Rami Hamdallah, the uh, new prime minister of the unity government that Mahmoud Abbas leads. To have invited him, but uh, but Abbas still remains the, the top. No, I know. I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I, I understand. Because I know that the United I States... The audience ha- necessarily understands. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, but, right. but the, the, the United the States now recognizes right. him as prime minister of this new government, so I was, uh, I guess I was just conjecturing whether the Vatican recognizes well, they him. They haven't as- yet recognized uh, the new government. We have to see yet. It, it hasn't fully emerged, but the likelihood is, and the indications from the administration have been, is that they will recognize this, quote, technocratic, unquote, government, meaning where it's not going to be Fatah Hamas people. It's going to be technocrats who will accept in principle the quartet requirements, you know, and the past positions of the uh, of the Palestinian Authority so that they technically can bypass the automatic restrictions that Congress has placed on aid yeah. uh, and that is the law of the United States uh, that would forbid them with Hamas being in the government to receive aid. So I think the administration has indicated they will recognize it, but I anticipate that we may see uh, efforts in Congress to block 
uh, aid, or, or not permanent, but to put a hold on it to see what happens, how this government functions. But look at what the Fatah has, the Hamas has said. They said that we will continue the violence, we will continue resistance. We're not changing our positions. We will not let our forces be under the control of this joint government, or certainly, and didn't let Fatah forces to come in back into Gaza. That that's one of the obstacles, and there's certain individuals that they have. Uh, you got to you got to backtrack for me for a moment. Am, am, am I right that Washington has indicated in the past, in the last few weeks, that in fact this unity government would not be recognized, or or there was no definitive statement like that made? No, they ne- did not make it definitive. Members of Congress did, yes. but never the White House. The White House did not indicate that they would not accept it. If no, they did say if if it is a Hamas a unity government of Hamas and Fatah. Not this, which is a fiction that has been proposed before. This is not the first time that we've seen this this idea of a technocrat government right. in order to for them, you know, to be able to say to their people, we haven't changed any of our views. We are who we are. Now we have this government, supposed government, that uh, will deal with the right. economy so- and other things until uh, an election which would be scheduled supposedly in six months but i wouldn't hold my breath so to the average guy living in gaza it lives on as a real unity government just to the rest of the world the question is what's the what is the meaning of fatah uh, hamas unity government well i don't i'm not i don't believe that it'll be for the guy living in gaza when he doesn't see any change in the hamas rule there and you don't see uh Hata, what one of the things that uh, hamas is demanding is that 40,000 of its people in Gaza be put on the payroll of the Palestinian Authority. Wow. So I, I think that this is, the, the Hamas is doing this because of the economic pressure, because of what Egypt has done to them, because they've lost money, the internal demands. So they shift the onus. And in the meantime, they'll prepare to run in the next election and be able to run both in the West Bank and in Gaza. Talk about buying support, huh? <laughs> I mean, my gosh, how blatant can you be? Um, all right, so now talk about the Israeli presidential election for a moment. Uh, why is there such a rift between Lieberman and the prime minister over the possibility that Ruby Rivlin will be president of Israel? Lieberman has a longstanding uh, gripe with him over uh, his refusal to, when he was Speaker of the Knesset to allow legislation that would have, one, investigated uh, aid to non-governmental organizations, ah. and second, about uh, cutting off the pensions to some of the uh, Arab members who conducted uh, anti-Israel activities. That was that, Those were the issues. But the prime minister also had his differences with Rivlin and did not support him, had looked for others. Uh, there are all sorts of reports about uh, him reaching even outside of Israel, uh, it's not the first time, by the way, that that has happened. That was the Elie Wiesel rumor? That's the rumor about Elie Wiesel. Uh, Elie Wiesel's not a citizen of Israel, as far as I know, so he probably wouldn't be eligible, but they thought they could do what they did with Stanley Fisher when he came to right. the bank. Um, but the, the, the process, people don't know, is that you need 10 members of the Knesset to, introduce, to be able to become a candidate. To endorse you, essentially. Right. But then the vote is only in the Knesset. So right. you have to win a majority. It means you have to have some political base. <laughs> and uh, look, I think a unifying person, somebody who will carry on, you know, as a the presidential mantle with some dignity and and be able to to use it as a unifying uh, uh, office for Israel, which is so rift, rift uh, uh, with with the 
positions of every kind. The president, and, and the polls show it, that it has the position of most respect and most trust. So when a society is so divided, having a personality that can address the differences, try to build bridges, try to heal wounds at times, is very important. And also to be a, a, an additional face to the outside world. Right. Shimon Peres certainly was. Uh, so we're going to see uh, the, the election is going to be on the 10th of June, I think. Is Rivlin going to win? Well, I'm not sure it'll be in the first time that we'll see it. What will happen, you have uh, six candidates. The three key ones are Fuad Ben-Eliezer from Labor. You have Dalia Itzik, who a former speaker, and uh, Ruby Rivlin, a former speaker to Knesset. Right now, Rivlin is, is certainly the front runner. He was endorsed by the prime minister. Um, but it may take uh, two ballots, to uh, a second ballot, to we know who, who wins. And I asked someone this week why the position of President of Israel was originally created. And they said to me, because Ben-Gurion needed a job for Chaim Weitzman. He had to create some type of position for him. And I said, if that's true... That, that definitively the state of Israel is the quintessential Jewish organization. <laughs> I mean, if that's really the history of it, then I will tell you that they operate. He needed a fundraiser. So, <laughs> but, you know, the president, um, it's a nice house, and he has a shul on the property, by the way. Was in- I told you I got Blavy there on Thanksgiving morning. I know, I'm not telling it to you, you, I know. But uh, the... Uh, the there can be a constructive thing, but there is. I believe it will come now under very considerable review, and many people questioned the, the need, including the prime minister at one point, questioning whether they needed to, to have a president. But uh, I think, that, but there's no demand from the people because of the cost to to cut it out right now, from what I can see. But people wanted to be somebody serious. They, they, you know, we've had too many scandals, and they want somebody who who will be clean. Malcolm, it's such a good line that I predict over the weekend you're going to be using it. That if in fact if it's, it's a true story, then the state of Israel is the quintessential Jewish organization. I have a feeling you're going to be using it. And if I find out that you did, <laughs> I'll be approaching only you only with attribution. I will be approaching you for royalties. <laughs> <laughs> what did you, did you see any of the prime minister's comments? Yom Yushalayim at Merkaz Harav. Did you have a chance to see any of it? I saw some of the news reports. Unbelievable, no? I mean, he yeah. just he spoke with fire and brimstone about the city of and Jerusalem. And you know, the, the, the government convenes at Ammunition Hill. There's always a special right. session every year now that uh, is very moving and, and uh, again, doesn't get much coverage. Uh, but the it is um, his comments were very strong, and the very fact that he goes to Merkaz Harav which was the site of a massacre, as you recall, sure. Uh, for sure. That uh, it, it is a very poignant and, and significant. Are the annexation bills basically dead in the Knesset at this point? I would say I don't think there would be a majority for it. I don't think the prime minister wants it. I think in terms of the international setting right now and uh, the timing, I don't think that they will uh, go anywhere. Are the prime minister and Naftali Bennett basically getting along at this point, or not? Like, is there a, a, any any heated uh, battles between the two of them, or they're essentially uh, at least publicly getting along? Um, that's a hard line to define, but I, I would not say that they have a warm and fuzzy relationship. <laughs> and it, it goes back, you know, he worked for, Bennett worked for the prime minister. There right. are, but there are tensions. They do cooperate on things, and, and I don't think their views are that vastly different, uh, but I uh, would not describe it as a, as 
the most cordial relationship. By the way, I'm getting very nervous, and I'm being serious. This isn't a joke. I'm getting very nervous. If you look back at the last, and I think you could verify this, if you look at the last 25 to 30 years, whenever there's a real lull, or what what seems to be what's perceived as a lull to the outsider, not to someone like yourself, but what's perceived you know to, to lay people like me as a lull in the whole peace talk issue. You know when things seem to be really quiet, when a guy like John Kerry to us seems to be you know inactive at this point right now over the last few weeks. All of a sudden, it seems that some big news development uh, regarding the peace process comes out of nowhere. And I'm getting a little worried that it's so off the radar right now that that's something that could be to the detriment of Israel could be you know coming up down the road. What would you say to that? I think that the uh, you know I think the pattern uh, perhaps is true, and, and it also tends to turn the focus then internally, and you have more divisions uh, arise from uh, the domestic agenda as well. But uh, first, I don't think the peace process is dead. I think that uh, Secretary Kerry has said that he, they're going to move from. Uh, moving towards a peace agreement, towards management, crisis management, rather than crisis resolution. Uh, but I, I don't think that this is over. Uh, right now, it depends on what happens in the Palestinian Authority, what happens with this so-called uh, technocrat government. The, the, the incitement on Palestinian TV continues. All the other things continue. All the things they promised to do, we don't see any uh, change. We all, but we also see that the security arrangements between the Palestinian and Israelis seem to be holding. Both sides have said it, and both sides seem to remain committed. It serves each purpose, it, both sides' purposes, uh, but we'll see that, that I'm sure that will be put to the test as well. So I, I, the danger when you have, as you call it, a law or hiatus in, in American-driven activities is that the Europeans and others get involved and they may want to have some sort of a diversion they want to show their relevance uh, given all the events in the middle east they may be you know ha- carrying too heavy a load right now right. but i would not be surprised by that to see new initiatives coming from the outside oh boy even when it's calm there's tension but this is what uh, we learned from the Haggadah, where it says behold over there in every generation and really the Yaakov kamenetsky that's all i think it was who asked why in every generation they say, look at the next paragraph, when he said, isn't there one that had the quiet period? And it says there, it tells the story of Lavan, and Lavan became Shlach I called it, Lavan wanted to destroy it all, meaning that Yaakov Avinu thought that he was living there in relative quiet and, and prosperity, and all the time Lavan was plotting. So even the generations that don't see the outward manifestations, but this generation is seeing both right now, and that's what the European thing is, why we learned the lessons of history. We saw the destruction this week of the oldest shul synagogue in Syria. But the absolute total devastation of a place which was called the Eliyah Navi synagogue because uh, supposedly uh, Elijah the prophet was there. There was a cave and they said that he hid there and he, w- he anointed one of the kings of Israel there. Uh, but this place had rare Jewish finds. It hasn't been a synagogue for many years. It was used as a Palestinian school in other ways. But many artifacts really Asian. Now, it's true that they destroyed, I don't know, Dozens of churches, hundreds of mosques have been destroyed. But here, uh, it, people said that they don't know what the target would have been, uh, but it was, it's bombed into, into total destruction. Uh, and the loss of, of uh, that kind of uh, important institution, something Syrian Jews certainly know uh, very well, but 
others as, as well because of its uh, its unique significance. It must have been extra painful back for you. In medieval times and earlier. It must have been extra painful for you because you fought to make sure that those sites would be preserved properly. And, we, and, and the truth is that most of them uh, were, and, and to Assad's credit, they promised uh, to, to uh, sustain them and maintain them. Um, it's, it's a very painful thing when you, when you witness that kind of, uh, of wanton dis- destruction uh, taking place. But, you know, we see other things in L.A. in the um, Rialto Unified School District, I think it's called, 2008th graders were told to do an essay whether they believe the Holocaust actually occurred or whether it was a, a uh, political creation. And, you know, when you ask 8th graders, it's one thing to ask for creative writing. It's another thing when you make that the subject of it and when you endorse in that way the actual questioning of the reality uh, they don't wouldn't say did america really get created was there an american revolution was right. there you know any of the other tragedies or, or significant occurrences in, in history did they occur uh, and this taking place in los angeles uh, again is is something that has to be a wake-up call got to keep our ears and eyes open at all times and jewish leadership out there please use all the opportunities especially publicly to laud and thank God for the city of Jerusalem and the state of Israel. And this Sunday, let's take the opportunity to celebrate together up Fifth Avenue and make sure that everybody in the entire world knows that Israel has amazing support, especially from our community, thank God. Malcolm, we will see you Sunday. Have a wonderful Shabbos. And next week, I guess, if we, if we always commit to talk about the events of the week, I guess next Friday it'll all be about cheesecake and blintzes, huh? Those are two very good topics. Uh, You'll give some recipes, maybe? I don't know if you want fruit filling or cheese filling, but, uh, uh, you know, sometimes those discussions can be much more productive <laughs> than talking about... Uh, don't yell at me if it's only a 10-minute conversation next Friday with all the yuntif in between, you know what I mean? Listen, with all the things that are going on, the things that we didn't get to about what's happening in Turkey, and there are going to be elections coming up. We'll, we'll be able to update everybody on where the presidential election in Israel is going to be. The uh, follow-up to the Egyptian election now, which we didn't talk about what it's going to mean by then, we'll start seeing how the government being formed uh, and as they move towards parliamentary elections there and elsewhere. And, of course, the events in the Ukraine, which we didn't talk about and update. Uh, so Gosh. I don't think there'll be a shortage of things. Gosh, there's so much. Plus, I'm going to put on my list this uh, story about Iranian espionage through the web, which Israel has, well, Israel and the free world has to deal with. And, and look at what Khamenei said. Right. For all those who talk, because, you know, we're facing a July deadline, supposed deadline, uh, for, for the talks, where he said the jihad will last until every, uh, in, every presence of America is wiped out. Plus, who was it this week? Uh, who met? Pakistan and Afghanistan? Who, who had the big handshake this week? India and Pakistan. Oh, India and Pakistan. The president of India, by right. the way, Modi, is a, a very, considered very pro-Israel. He has a long history as the governor of uh, Gajarat, that's, uh, having established uh, very close ties and billions of dollars of Israeli investment there. And the new foreign minister of India is also very pro-Israel and is a, a, a big follower of Golda Meir. Wow. All right, I've moved the cheesecake to the bottom of the list. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We will, Shabbos we will see you Sunday, and a try to good Yontav as well. Uh, Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update.